Well, we're continuing our series that's called The Really Good News. And uh, actually, just to let you know, next week we'll be doing that song live again. We did it to start the series out. We're going to do it to close the series out. But uh, each week I've differentiated between good news, which we all want, we never get enough of, and really good news. So good news is like this. Tends to be physical, tends to be temporal, something locked into time, circumstantial, and personal. It does have immediate impact, but with a limited duration. You know, you may get some good news that some relative, you know, went through some medical testing or something like that, and they're doing good. So you feel good. You feel good for a short time. You're not necessarily going to carry that with you forever. But really good news, which is what this series is about, it's different. First of all, it's spiritual. Second, it's eternal, not bound by time. It's experiential. It's something that penetrates deep within us, or at least can, and it's universal. It's not just good news for me. It's good news for anyone that wants to avail themselves of it. It does still have immediate impact, but it's with an unlimited duration, meaning it can be good news for me now, good news for me 20 years from now, even into the very end of my life. It has the power to endure. So, this morning, we're going to talk about the good news about salvation. Now, now uh, I just want to catch some of you because some of you are like, oh, man, come on, Randy. Salvation, man, I know that. I know the whole salvation thing. I've, I've been a Christian for so many years, and so you just switch the station, and you're like, oh, man, I knew I should have stayed home today and just read or something. And, but hold on. Hold on. I want you to be willing to... Open your hearts, open your minds, and look at a subject that you may think you understand very well, and just consider the possibility that maybe, just maybe, you didn't understand it as well as what God would like you to understand it. Maybe, just maybe, you haven't understood its implications to the degree that God wants us to understand its implications and enjoy its application in our life. So... Let's start by uh, reading a verse. This is from the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul. He's writing to Christ followers living in the city of Ephesus. And he says, and you too trusted who? You trusted him, meaning Jesus Christ. He's saying, Paul's writing to him, he's saying, you guys in Ephesus, you all have already put your trust in Christ. You trusted him when you heard the message of truth the gospel or good news, the gospel or good news of your, what is the word? Salvation. Salvation. We'll pick that apart in a minute. After you gave your confidence to who? Yeah. Notice that confidence in Christ, trust in Christ, they're used synonymously and rightly so. The Greek word is pistis. It's translated sometimes belief, trust, reliance, confidence, all means the same thing. But it's a relational word. It's not just belief like something is true or not true. It's a relational word. I trust in, I have confidence in Christ. After you gave your confidence to him, you were, to, so to speak, stamped with the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee, guarantee that we're God's possession. But the key there was the good news about salvation. Now, we said in this series that this term good news or gospel... It appears just under 100 times in the New Testament. It's a Greek word, euangelion, and sometimes it's translated in older translations, gospel, most modern translations, it's good news. So what was the unique good news about salvation 
that Jesus initiated with his coming. That's what we want to look at today. What, what was so unique that it's called good news, really, really good news? I think we have to first start by asking ourselves, what, what, picture, what picture comes to mind when you hear the word salvation? Now, I've been around church world for a long time now, and I'm reasonably familiar with what church folk tend to think and what churches teach about salvation. And this is what generally is presented, that salvation is this gift, and, you know, it's like almost this like a little gift box. And inside the gift box, if you take it, if you take the gift of salvation, you get the certainty of heaven and the forgiveness of your sins. And that's usually the way it's presented. It's presented, hey, do you want salvation? If you want salvation, salvation is yours. It's a free gift. And in the salvation box, in, in the salvation package, it's forgiveness of sins and the certainty of heaven. But is that accurate? Let's go further. Is that true? Maybe it is, but maybe it's just a piece of the truth. Maybe the word salvation has a very different meaning than what the traditional Bible-believing, Christ-centered churches have put on it. Let's look at the word itself. So the word, the New Testament was written in Greek, and the Greek word is this word soteria. Uh, that's the word for salvation. It's used about 45 times in the New Testament. Short version of it, save or saved. It comes from the same root, sozo. It's used about 106 times. But here's the thing. The word salvation, the word saved, save, it has the notion of rescue. It has the notion of deliverance. It has the notion of someone that is in dire danger or ill health being put into a safe condition again, being restored, being fixed, being put out of danger, moving away from danger. That being the case of the original word and what the original word means, that then this, this box, this little ribbon box with either, you know, a couple things in it, forgiveness of sins and certainty of heaven, it, it really shouldn't look like that. It should look more like this. That's the picture that should come to our minds when we hear the word salvation. That Someone is in dire danger, and a lifeline is being dropped to them, and now they have a choice whether or not they want to be saved from the dire danger, saved from the dangerous condition. Let me give you another picture. That's amazing. Somebody just told me the story behind this uh, after the first service. They knew the whole story. That guy is not like a rescue guy. He's a construction worker. Uh, the guy that's down there reaching up, he evidently buried his kayak, you know, went over that, that, that uh, ramp there. And these construction guys, very quickly, you can see that's a crude chain. That's not a real rescue rig. They took a crane and, and some chains and different things and, and really went the extra mile to save this guy. But, you know, unless he grabs that guy's hand and holds on and wants to be saved... Even though salvation, rescue is offered to him, if he doesn't want to be saved, if he doesn't want to leave the dangerous condition, he won't be saved. Now, let's think Christmas for a moment. Christmas story. Matthew 1, verse 21. And they shall call his name Jesus because... He shall save, rescue, that's that word, soteria, or sozo, the short version of it. He shall save, or he will save his people from hell. 
Is that what it says? No. And they shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their, you finish it, sins. So what is the danger, what is the dire danger that I am in, you are in, we are in? What is it that God's come to rescue and save us from that was initiated with Jesus? Is it saving us from some judicial judgment that will send us to a place hotter than what it is outside today? <laughs> it's not what the Bible teaches, folks. The really, really good news is that our loving God comes to us saying, look, I forgive you. My arms are open to you. I am not counting your sins against you. I am coming to rescue you from the stuff that's killing you, the stuff that's breaking your heart, breaking your life, ruining your world. I'm come, I'm come here to rescue you from the things. You really want happiness. You really want a good life, but you don't even know how to make it. You're, you're just experimenting your way through life. We all do it. And here's our loving God saying, I am coming to rescue you from this stuff that's tanking your life. Again and again. I'm just curious. How many of you have lived long enough that there were some things, <laughs> there were some things you did, there were some things you experimented with that at the time seemed like something you really wanted to do, really seemed like a lot of fun, but you've now lived long enough that you're like, dude, I would never do that again, ever, ever again. Can I just see your hands? You see, you got rescued. You became awakened that certain things that at one point, looked to be the thing to do. Everybody was doing it. It was fun to do. You came to a conclusion. <laughs> no way. No way. I'm, I've changed my mind about that. You were rescued. So Jesus came to rescue us from our danger, but our danger is sin. But there's more to it than that. Let's look at a few verses. John 3.17, now we know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in, trusts in, is that Greek word pistis, trust in, has confidence in, reliance in, that whosoever trusts in him will not perish. That word perish means be destroyed. Think about this slowly now. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever trusts in him will not be destroyed. There's stuff that destroys us in this life, destroys our peace, destroys our joy, destroys our soul in little chunks and bites. The follow-up verse is this, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come to judge us and condemn us. He came that the world through him might be what? That's that word sozo, rescued. He came to rescue us. When Jesus came, it was God. It was the divine rescue mission initiated in full force. It continues right down to today. But to rescue us from what? Well, you already said sin, Randy. Yeah. Let's look at a couple more verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the apostle Paul writing to Christ followers living in the city of Corinth, he says, the devil, a real being, a very powerful angelic entity, he has multiple names. In this case, they call him the name the devil. It just means the adversary. It's all it means. He's God's adversary. The devil or adversary who rules this what? Does that explain something? Does that explain why, why there's never peace in this world? Does it explain why there's so much bloodshed, so much hatred, so much prejudice, so much corruption, so much greed? The, the devil who rules this world 
has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. And that word believe, again, it's pistis, the Greek word, or trust. Those that don't trust in Christ is saying that he's blinded their minds. He's given them a different vision of life that leads them away from their creator, away from trusting their creator. The devil, the ruler of this world, has blinded the minds of those that don't trust. They cannot see the light of the good news. There's our word gospel, good news, euangelion. The good news about the glory of Christ who is exactly like who? God. When we look at Jesus of Nazareth, the man, we see God in his fullness. It says that all through the New Testament. But it's saying that some people, when they see Jesus, when they see God in all of his beauty and sacrificial giving of himself, they just kind of shrug their shoulders and they're like, so what, man? That, if that floats your boat, that's good. It doesn't really, you know, rock my world. So that's your thing. You do your Jesus thing, whatever. They're saying they don't get it. They, they look and they don't see anything that stirs their hearts to desire the world, the life, the salvation that this Jesus, the creator of the universe, comes to offer us. There's another one in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. If you would read the verse 3 before it, you would read on your own sometime. It's talking about Christ. When it says he, it's talking about Christ. He wants all humanity to be what? That's that word sozo. We get salvation from it, soteria. He wants the, all humanity to be saved, to be delivered, and to come to full knowledge of the truth. When we know the truth about God and the truth about life, we escape that influence of the devil, the adversary, so that we don't live our life as though we don't have any real purpose or meaning. One last one. In the book of Galatians, Paul writing to Christ followers in the city of Galatia, he says, he, meaning Jesus, he gave himself for our sins. But why? Why did he give himself for our sins? What does it say? To what? Rescue. rescue. That's our word, sozo. Salvation, soteria. To rescue us from this what? Present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father. What does he mean, rescue us from this present evil age? Is he going to like... Ship us out of here? I mean, obviously not. So what does it mean? Well, remember we just read that the adversary, the devil, is blinded to minds. He rules the whole world. Therefore, this age is an evil age. It has false value system. It has false pursuits. It stirs a desire-oriented lifestyle, saying that that's normal and okay, and everybody's doing it, so how bad can it be? But Jesus said something quite contrary. Remember he was talking in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. He gave this picture of the whole world being divided onto two differing paths. He said there, there, there's this broad path that many, the majority of people are on. Jesus said it, it's broad, it's wide open, and most people are on this path. He says, it's easy. It's an easy path. You just do whatever you want. You live any way you want. You believe what you want. You do what you want on this path. He says, unfortunately, this broad path that most people are on leads to destruction. He says, then, then there's this narrow path. He says, it's hard. He says, not many people are on this path. Few are on this path. He says, however, it's this narrow path, this narrow way that leads to life. And then Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way or the path I'm the truth I'm the life so Jesus is saying that if we follow the majority there is not safety in numbers far from it he says that the majority are being led astray you can read another portion of scripture where it says this powerful angelic entity called Satan called Lucifer called the shining one called the devil called a bunch of other things the destroyer that that he deceives the whole world and it all started way back, if you read the book of Genesis, chapter 3, read it on your own sometimes. You've heard me say this many times. I'll repeat it again. 
this entity, the Nakash, the shining one, Satan, Lucifer, whatever you want to call him, he comes into the Garden of Eden and he tempts the first couple, Adam and Eve. God had given them one forbidden. He says, don't, don't eat of this one tree. It's a knowledge of good and evil. I don't, I don't want you dealing with that now. I'll teach you what I need to teach you in time. Just don't eat of that one tree. You can eat of every other tree in the garden. So Satan, the Nakash, the shining one, comes and he says, he, he told you if you eat of that tree, you're going to die. He says, you're not going to die if you eat of that tree. Truth be told, Adam and Eve, if you eat of that tree, you'll become like God yourself. He's holding back from you. He doesn't want you to be equal with him. He's lying to you. Satan slandered God to that first couple. And humanity ever since has believed, and you've done this and I've done this. There's been seasons in our life when we believed that the safest, happiest life we could possibly have is to do what I want, when I want, how I want. And we've all bought into it, as opposed to my safest, happiest life is to live the way my creator created me and designed me to live, the way he wants, when he wants, how he wants. So we need to be saved from this philosophical lie that governs the masses, that life is just random, that it doesn't matter, and it's an open book to live any way we want. And so Jesus initiated us. And this salvation that he came, it, it's for everyone. It's offered everyone. There's not a person in this room, there's not a person on this planet that if they choose to, cannot be saved from our sins, from this evil age, from being deceived about the meaning and purpose of life, and so on. So let me summarize some thoughts real quick. Salvation, first of all, is personal. God comes to each of us individually, just like that cable hanging down from that helicopter. The cable of God is hanging down to each and every one of us. Jesus hanging on that cross is the cable of God saying, there is now no reason not to trust me. You can see I love you with a sacrificial love. I love you more than you could ever love yourself. There's no reason not to trust me. I come with forgiveness offered. There's no reason to fear me. Not guilt, not shame, no barriers. It's personal, but it's only potential. Because the truth be told, not each of us will embrace this salvation because embracing this salvation means I become a follower of Jesus. Jesus said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. He doesn't give eternal life to those that are not his followers. He can't because we just be eternally destructive. He gives eternal life to those that trust him, their creator, return to him, and then follow him. Listen, folks, everybody in this room is following somebody. We are, most of us maybe, at points in our life, following ourselves, And then hopefully most of us now have changed our minds about that and we're following Jesus. But everybody's following somebody. And Jesus said only his followers are those that receive eternal life. Let's go back. So it's personal, it's potential. God wants to rescue us from destruction. The destruction of this age, the destruction of sin. Because sin is living in discord with my design. But salvation right now, it's partial. Uh, you still have locks on your doors. We all still have locks. We still have police force. We still have armies because God's salvation has not come 
and done to this planet what it promises, what he promises it's going to do. And it's frankly only partial in us because it's progressive. As I become aware that I'm living in certain ways counter to the way God designed me, I have to go, oh, wow, I I didn't realize, Lord, that that's not the way you want me to live, so I'm going to now stop living that way, and you want me to live this way. Instead, I'm going to learn to start living that way. So it's progressive. It's always in motion. I'm always in process of putting off my old, ways and learning God's new ways. So it's partial and progressive, but you know what it's doing? The more we follow Jesus, which is living in the way that God designed us to live, living according to our real nature, it rebuilds us. It it rebuilds our soul, and we become fully human and fully alive. Capacities that were dormant and dead, they come alive. New capacities for joy, new capacities for feeling good about oneself for the right reason every day. These come alive as we follow Jesus progressively. But finally, this salvation that he initiated, it's going to be perfect. It's going to be complete. It's going to fill the universe. It's going to be for everyone all the time, forever. And it's going to never end. He's going to restore the entire universe. He's going to literally recreate the heaven and the earth. And it's going to be the place that deep inside every human heart we've always wanted to live in. The place where fear doesn't exist. Where danger doesn't exist. Where hatred doesn't exist. Where stress and anxiety don't exist. Where everyone feels they belong, where everyone feels loved all the time, where everyone feels and is safe all the time. He promises. He initiated it in his first coming. He's going to bring it to pass in his second coming. So salvation is is more than just this little box with the certainty of heaven and the forgiveness of sins. It's a lot more than that. Now, maybe some of us have a hard time. Well, but, you know, like, Randy, you're talking about all this danger. You know, we need rescue. I don't feel very in danger. I'm sitting here. I feel pretty safe sitting in this room right now. Uh, you know, you say we need to be delivered from sin. But, man, you know, t- truth be told, <laughs> I'm still sinning. And, you know, I don't have any dire consequences going on. Well, maybe we're not thinking deeply enough. How many of you in this room... Uh, feel confident you will live to be 120 years old. Can I see your hands? Okay, well, a couple of people back there. Confident. Right there, 120. How many would say that should these people live to be 120, they live good old, rich lives? Is 120 pr- pr- pretty rich, long life? How, how many would agree with that? See here? Long life? Is it really? Or are we just foolishly unaware of how damaged we are and how pitifully short that is. You you remember what it says in James 4.14? It says, what is your life, you humans? It's even a vapor. It's like a puff of smoke. It just appears for a second and then it vanishes away. Check this guy out. Check check this guy. An Aldabra Seychelles tortoise. 255 years old. He lives in India. He doesn't look a day over 40. (laughs) 255 years old, a tortoise. And we're thinking if we make it 120, we've lived a rich old life. But that's nothing. That's nothing. Check this out. These things are only about a half inch long. Little tentacles might be an inch or two, a hydra. Anybody want to make a guess how long hydras live? They are immortal. Randy, nothing's immortal on this planet now. Oh, yes, it is. And that's not the only thing that's immortal. 
I believe these are little hints that God has left behind to show us the damage, the damage that sin has done. We should not accept that this brief, short journey that we have is normal or acceptable. It's the result of sin ravaging the human species. We were built for eternity. And so it's a very real thing that we are in need of being rescued from. So let's ask this question. What does it look like if a person has salvation? What does it look like if a person is saved? I mean, this is good language. Acts 16, 31, this guy asked the apostle Paul. He says, he's trembling, and he says, what must I do to be saved in Acts 16, 31? And Paul turns to him, and he says, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. He doesn't say anything else. He doesn't, he doesn't say, you got to believe this, you got to sing that, you got to join this, you got to do that, you know, you got to high five, you know, you got to say Hail Mary. Or, you know, you, he just says, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ meant becoming his follower. That's it. So if you're sitting here and you're a little unclear and you're uncertain about this notion of being saved, and being saved means your sins are forgiven, you're given the gift of everlasting life, the Spirit of God will start to indwell you and help you to grow to become who you're always meant to become and do what you're always meant to do, you can then rid yourself of self-destructive sinful patterns that are contrary to the way God designed you. All that comes the minute, the millisecond that you say, let everybody else do what they want to do. I don't care. Everybody following somebody. I'm putting my trust in Jesus, the creator of the universe, the one that died on the cross for me. I'm putting my trust in him, and I am going to become his follower. I don't care if anyone else is following. I'm following him. The second that you make that decision, you're saved. But what does it look like if a person's really saved? What does it look like? It's very important we ask that question. Because there are an awful lot of people that will tell you they're saved, and they're not saved. Because we, we see people that are living immersed in sin. They could care less about the word of God, the will of God. They could care less about doing what Jesus says, living the way he designed. And yet they say they're saved. And I ask the question, what is it that you're saved from? Because that doesn't match scripture. So here's the picture we need in mind when we think of saved. That. That's a tsunami. And these people are doing the right thing. They are running. Unless our lives show an urgent, an urgent body pattern of action in which we are running, we are fleeing that which is destructive and we are pursuing that which is constructive, we have no reason to say we're saved because what are we, we saved from? You say, right now, I'm not buying this. Well, let's look, let's look on. Let's look. 1 Timothy 1.15. What I say is true. And all the world should receive it. What is it that we should receive? Christ Jesus, Christ means Messiah, Messiah Jesus, Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? We're good so far, right? Anybody here not a sinner? Okay, good, 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 good. We're all sane then today. He came into the world to save sinners, but it doesn't stop there, does it? He came into the world to save sinners from their what is it? Not works, man. Not works. It's on the screen. <laughs> From their sin. How's that at work? So here's the cable coming down, and I'm going to grab onto it, but it's going to save me from my sin. But I've got to want to be saved from my sin, right? And so there should be 
a manifestation in my life that I am fleeing, I am running from sin because I believe it's dangerous and destructive. But if I'm running towards sin, if I'm immersing myself in it and just saying, oh, well, nobody's perfect and God forgives us, eh, that doesn't really make sense. Doesn't make sense. Listen to this one from Titus. Apostle Paul writing to Titus, a guy that was watching over some churches that Paul had planted. He says, God has shown us how kind he is by coming to do what? Save all people. There's our word, sozo. We get soteria or salvation from it. To save all people. He wants everybody to be saved. Everybody. The lifeline has been dropped down. Everybody. But he taught us. What is it you want to save us from? He taught us to give up our. That's how he saves us. That's what he's saving us from. He taught us to give up our wicked ways. Why? Because they're hurting us. They're destroying us. You said to me earlier, you said, man, there's some things I used to do that I thought were cool they were fun, but now I wouldn't do them for anything. I've learned my lesson. I know better now. He taught us to give up our wicked ways and our worldly desires and to live decent and honest lives in this world. It goes on. He says, we're, we're filled with hope as we wait for the glorious return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice Jesus is called God because he is God. He gave himself for us. He gave, why, but Jesus, why did you give yourself for us? He gave himself for us to set us free from every... So if I'm saved, what am I saved from? It says he wanted to save me from every sin. So shouldn't there be a manifestation that I am being saved progressively from sin? That I am eliminating sin in my life? I am running from sin, not towards sin. I am fighting against sin, not justifying sin in my life. He gave himself. It was meant to motivate us. It was meant to build our trust in him so that we would have power and determination to flee from sin, to free us from every sin, and to cleanse us, to cleanse us, our motives, our minds, everything, so that we can be his special people who are enthusiastic about doing what? A bunch of people who really have goodwill. They just love what is good they love what is right they do what is right when people appreciate it and when they don't appreciate it they do what's right when it's going to cost them dearly they still do it. they love they hunger and thirst after righteousness like jesus said that's the kind of people that are saved that's what saved people look like. Randall, are you saying that you saved people are sinless, perfect? No, 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 no. Remember I told you it's progressive. We're always in process of putting off those old wicked ways, sinful habits, and so forth, and in the process of learning Jesus' righteous, unselfish, sacrificial, caring, giving ways. It's a process. It's different looking for all of us, but, man, there ought to be something to look at. It just ought to be something to see. One last one of 1 Peter. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, he's saying that like we're, we're in such a minority as Christ followers here on earth that it's almost like we're, we're foreigners and exiles. Heaven's our home. We're not home here on this earth. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to do what? Abstain. Abstain from what? Why? Why should you abstain from sinful desires which wage war against what? They hurt us, in other words. You see, you see, that's the salvation Jesus brings. He's saying, I love you. 
And I want to rescue you from living in contradiction to the way you're designed. I want you to have life in its fullness, but I can't give you life. I can't give me life in fullness unless you'll trust me and stop living in accord with sinful ways and desires because, man, they're taking your soul a chunk at a time. And you know what's deadly about sin is that as it bites away and eats up our soul a little at a time, we don't even know what's happening. We feel like everything is okay because it desensitizes as it destroys. And that's what makes it so subtle and deadly. So saved people should show some transformation. It should be evident immediately. We were once following our own ways, now we're following Jesus' ways, but it should be evident progressively as life goes on. Now, I'm going to close with a story that I think just gives a good graphic illustration of the kind of evidence that salvation should show. Uh, I'm going to probably mispronounce these names terrible, but it's about a couple that live in Nairobi, Kenya. They're not a couple like husband and wife, but they were high school friends. The lady's name was Wanja uh, Muwara, and the guy's name is Patrick Hinga. And here's a picture. She's just this beautiful, warm lady. I mean, beautiful smile. And let's face it, folks, Patrick is scary. Okay? <laughs> He's scary. Let me just tell you a little of the story. They were high school friends, and then they lost track of each other for many, many years. Patrick became a drug addict, became a street person. He was homeless. He literally would run around the neighborhood naked at times. People were terrified of him in, in Nairobi. And one day, his old classmate, Wanja, sees him. And you saw what she did? She, she was kind of right there hugging him. This guy was vile, filthy, dirty. Let me show you another picture. Filthy, dirty, probably hadn't had a bath in months, if not longer. And look at her. What, what, what a... What a beautiful person. Now, she could have went to him and said, Oh, Patrick, if you'll just believe in Jesus, you can have your sins forgiven and go to heaven and left him. Would that have helped? Would that have saved him? We've got to get our heads out of sand, folks. Here's what she did. She took Patrick. That was a little too quick one to draw, whoever did that. <laughs> it's done now. She took Patrick to a clinic. She paid for it. She helped him get back on his feet. That's what he looks like now. And she even helped him start a small business of his own. That's salvation. That, that, that's what saved looks like. Patrick says that each day he prays to God to keep sober, to keep clean, to keep on that path of righteousness. Now we're going to have communion in a second. Lord's Supper is a bit of a long service today. And, and what, what it means is this, and we'll go into a little bit more, but, but the little elements we're going to pass out to you, you know, little, little bits of bread, a little bit of juice. Uh, Jesus, the last night he was with his disciples, he had this supper with them, and he started talking to them. He says, hey, hey his bread that you guys are eating now, he says, you, you don't realize it, but this is going to actually represent my body. Jesus knew that within 12 hours he was going to be on the cross. He tried to tell them, and they wouldn't believe it. He said, this juice, is, it, it's going to represent my blood because I'm about to shed my blood for you. That's how much I love you. That's how much you can trust me. So he's there sharing this stuff with them on that last night. 
And he wants them to remember it. And he wants them to do it even after he's gone. That is why we still do it today. I'll add a few more pieces to that in just a minute. Kim's going to come now and explain how we'll uh, pass these elements out to you. Then I'll come back. Every time we do this, we're announcing we receive the salvation that Jesus meant to bring. Now, that doesn't mean that each of us are necessarily saved. But here's what is clear. If you have at some point in your life made a decision to put your trust in Christ and become his follower, at that millisecond that you made that decision to trust Christ and follow him, you are in fact saved. In fact, you could say it like this. You're saved when you trust Christ and become his follower. You are then being saved progressively from sin, from evil, as you follow him, and you will be saved completely when he returns and brings the fullness of his kingdom. So I didn't want to confuse anybody with the message, but I did want you to have a, a clear picture that salvation is, is, is not this box present, but it's an experiential thing. And that our God who loves us, of course, wants to save us from that which is wrecking us and wrecking our life, which is sin. Jesus, as I said, celebrated this with his disciples the last night he's with them. The apostle Paul then brought that teaching back to the followers of Christ in Corinth. And he said it this way. I better put my specs on or who knows what I'll say. <laughs> in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23, says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and after he had given thanks... He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Keep that in mind. That's important. Remembrance of me. In the same way, he took also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, meaning he comes in return. So nothing mystical or magical is going to happen. When, when, when we put this little bit, piece of bread in our mouth, it's going to stay a piece of bread. It's not even a good piece of bread at that. Let's be honest. It's what it symbolizes. It's meant to help us remember that the almighty God of the universe, the almighty one who speaks and worlds come into existence, loves individually each of us knowing us he knows us through and through everything about us that he sacrificially gave himself on a cross allowed himself to be beaten humiliated mocked and nailed there to say this is how much i love you and want your good will you just trust me will you just follow me and each time we do this we should be reminded this is who our God is, and He's the God that brings everlasting salvation. Let's remember the body of our Lord Jesus given to win back our trust. He told them that the, the cup, the juice, the wine, that it represented His shed blood, that He loves us literally unto death. The Creator of the universe entered into death itself to show how much we can trust him. Let's remember the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've allowed us yet one more occasion to remember the great salvation that your sacrifice brings to us. Uh, may your spirit help each of us search our hearts to know whether we have received this great salvation that you offer us, whether we have indeed put our trust in you and become your followers. May your spirit wrestle with each of us in accordance with what we need the most. I ask it, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.